This is Jesus speaking in John chapter 8. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. And now this is Jesus speaking in Matthew chapter 5. And Jesus said to them, you are the light of the world. And this is Paul in Philippians 2, 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And among them shine like the stars in the sky. So all of you have seen this painting before. Of course, it's Van Gogh's Starry Night. You've seen this evening sky, this village out in the valley, these beautiful swirls of light that Van Gogh so loved to paint. Um, what you may not have noticed before, because you might not have looked for it, is um, right in the middle of the valley, you see there's a church, steeple. Uh, the painter, Mako Fujimura, says that, um, he's a contemporary painter, and he says, painter to painter, just from a construction perspective, if you removed this sort of high church and the steeple, the painting would fall apart. It's actually central to the painterly art of the structure of the painting. However, if you go to saint Remy, provence France, where Van Gogh painted this from behind the bars of his insane asylum, I mean, he painted the valley many times, th there's no church there. So why did Van Gogh put it there, and why did he make it central to the painting? To, to know, we got to know a little bit more about this man, Van Gogh. So um, I never knew until recently, reading some of his letters and a little biography about him, that Van Gogh was actually a man who wrestled deeply with a longing for the divine. But he also wrestled deeply with a fierce and sort of intractable doubt that there could be any divine. He grew up the son of a pastor. Um, I think the oldest of six or eight children. And in his childhood, he, he hated his father's belief, which he found dogmatic. And yet, once he left the house, he actually thought about going to seminary and got prepared to be a minister. And then he couldn't handle it, dropped out. And he decided to become an evangelist and moved to poor towns in Europe where he did evangelism amongst coal mining workers. And it was there that he started sketching some of the peasant workers and others, including his brother in particular, said, hey, you should, you should do this art thing. And he found his true calling in painting. Um, so now, as it turns out, Van Gogh, we think from his letters, couldn't hold on to his faith. But he carried this deep longing for the divine to the end of his life. And so go back to the church now. If you look in the valley, you'll see lots of houses with the lights on. And in fact, the only building with the lights off is the church. Um, later in life, before he committed suicide, he would write a letter to his brother. And he wrote this, quote, When I have a terrible need of dare I say the word religion, I go out and I paint the stars. Do you hear the fascinating and dreadful tension in that statement? When I long for the divine, when I long for God, I go out and I look at the material world. The reason I start with Van Gogh this morning is because what I want to say to you this morning is that we are living in a time where our neighbors, and even ourselves, are more Van Gogh-like than ever. We carry this deep longing for the divine, and yet we live in an age that says, this is it. You want it? Just look at the stars. This is, the, his kids are having a great time. <laughs> um, this is where we find ourselves, okay? This is the kind of storm 
that we are walking into. You remember we started with this image of the trucks driving into the storm in Houston, right? And I've been trying to tell you this whole time that these habits reform our life with God. They're going to push us out into community and create friendships like we talked about last night. But, but now I want to tell you this morning how they push us out as missional people into a, what I'm going to call a secular age. And we're going to find that this is where our neighbors are, racked by their longing for the divine and racked by their doubts. And I want to ask us, how do we be that kind of missionary people? And how do we meet them there? I want to do that in three parts. First, I just want to briefly go over why, why, why are we a missionary people even in our homeland of America? Why are you a missionary wherever you live? Second, I want to, I want to ask, where are we missionaries? What, what sort of age is this? And I want to tell you what I mean by a secular age. And then third, I want to talk about two more habits, the last two, habits for the mission. And I'm, I'll probably go a little bit into our discussion time in order to get some Q&A. But I think, I think this is really going to be worth it to send us out into the world. So let's start right here at the beginning. The fundamental identity of Christians is a missionary people, which means that you are not at home in your home. You are sent to your home. We see this as a, Paul goes over this in 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21. He talks about there's a fundamental shift when we are moved to become followers of Christ this is one of the great summaries of salvation, right? Hear this. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might find the righteousness of God. This is what happens to us in salvation. And in that same block of scripture, Paul says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, go be reconciled to God. So just, just think about, I mean, this is, you know, basic logic here. We're ambassadors it means we're sent somewhere, right? You guys in D.C., the city full of ambassadors, know this. There's people all over sent to D.C. to carry the messages and the, the hopes and the dreams of other people's countries. We are ambassadors of Christ. Um, you see this throughout the story of Scripture. Christ, God's people are never home. They're always wandering like the Israelites. They're always moving from place to place, trying to find that home. You see this in the story of Jesus who left his home to become, to be with us. God is a missional God, always sending us. Um, and I think this is particularly important for us Christians in America, whether you're from here or you're now here. If you are a Christian in America, I think this is particularly important for us because we need Christianity in America to be shaken loose from its domestication. All right, because when we are... It's not until we finally understand that we are Christians before we are Americans that we will actually be the kind of, oh, I am sent here, ambassador of Christ. The problem is when we're Americans before we're Christians, we look out onto these neighbors, this strange world that we live in, and we see these people who think we're strange and our beliefs are weird, and they're in our way. We, we need them to get out of the way, or we need them to become more like us because they're a problem to our way of life. That's not a divine community of Christ. That's a domesticated culture, right? That's not Christianity. When we are ambassadors from Christ, we encounter the people around us who think we're weird and we're strange. And we say, well, of course. We're not from here. We're sent here. That's why we're here. We are here for them. How do we show them the light? Um, this, is a, this is a really big difference in how we think about our neighbors and how we think about ourselves. Let me tell you a story of how I got this completely wrong, actually, when I was in D.C. This was my first year of law school, and I was at this terrific um, garden party behind a row house. 
And I mean, y'all, y'all are gonna be familiar with this, right? It's like string lights, you know, 101 kinds of craft beers. Um, <laughs> all, people from, you know, all different kinds of faiths. Here's what I remember. It was um, in a house of people who were all nonprofit workers. They were the throwing the party. But none of them had any sense of orthodox faith, as I would call it. But they come to DC just on genuine missions to do good for the world. Um, I had a great friend that was there who was a really sincere Jewish girl. And, but interesting to talk about here. She, um, kosher was for later for her. Like she would ask me to make pork chops and lobster for her because she had her own way of doing her faith. Um, her fiance was there who was a Ghanaian, moved to America and was converting to Judaism, her form of Judaism from his Catholicism. And they would go on to be married by a female rabbi. Female rabbi. And then there was this PhD student who had just come back from studying existentialism in France. And we're all in conversation here. So, and I mean, you guys know this, right? This is where you live in the hotbed of pluralism. And it was a great party, um, except that this PhD student who studied existentialism was kind of picking on me because he found out that I had just returned from being a missionary. And um, he didn't really like that because he was kind of like, you know, you really shouldn't convince other people what to believe. Is it, you know... uh, Ironic, he's convincing me that I shouldn't convince other people. Um, but he was like, you know, you, you really can't be sure that, I, I, this is coming from his studies, right? He, you can't be sure that there's any meaning. We shouldn't try to convince other people that there's meaning. Uh, we can't even be sure that our words have meaning. And so I, I said, excuse, can I just stop you there? Did you know that your fly is down? <laughs> and uh, he looked, and finding that it wasn't down, he looked back up confusedly, and I said, if our words don't make sense and none of this has any meaning, then why'd you look and why would you care? And um, there was an awkward silence that fell over our conversation, and uh, that conversation ended. And I now look back at that moment with um, a, a kind of deep pain because I realized that I sent an image bearer of God packing. You know, I, I soundly won an argument with a pithy little line and lost the chance to love a neighbor. Like, he never would have got, he never got, he was not interested in talking to me after that, right? Um, he knew never have gotten to that place where Peter talks about in First Peter 3.15 that, that, you know, he would have wanted to ask, what's the reason for the hope within you? And I, and I mentioned this with you because, you, you know, I was, I was annoyed, I was offended in the moment, I felt attacked. I realized that we are living in a moment where it is painful, maybe, to be a Christian, where it is increasingly seeming like we are becoming a minority, maybe even a persecuted minority. There are these narratives going around. And I, I want to acknowledge that it is diff- difficult to live amongst the people who think that our beliefs are at best silly and antiquated, but maybe at worst wicked. Maybe at worst kind, a kind of evil, exclusive dogma. Um, and I'm not here to give you any false comfort that this might go away. What I'm, what I'm here to say is that that kind of pain is not the most important pain. Okay? Um, the pain that we should spend our energy thinking about is not the, the, the pain that comes from being in exile. We are exiles. That comes with its pain. The Bible talks about it. Get ready for that. What we should be thinking about is the pain of our neighbors who are insisting there is no possibility of meaning in the world, and they are living with that divine longing and that intractable doubt, and it is driving them mad. That's a pain worth dwelling on. Their confusion is nowhere—that is way more important— than our sense of exclusion. And so this is where I want to talk about, okay, so what, is, what does it mean that we are living amongst 
people who feel that the lights have been turned off in the world. There's a way, you, you can call this, and some smart people, smarter than me, do call it a secular age, and I actually think it's helpful, but what it doesn't mean is what you think of in secularism often is, oh, now there's just a, a big separation. Like, we can't do church and state, we can't do, you know, rationality and religion, we can't do science and religion, there's a separation. That is not helpful at all, I think, for understanding the world we live in. What you should think of when you think of secularism or us living in a secular age is you should think of living in a world with the lights off. Here's what I mean. You probably know, or at least feel, that over the past couple centuries, particularly accelerated in the past century, we have moved from the, uh, the default of faith to the default of doubt. Okay, it used to be you would look at the atheists and be like, are you kidding me? Seriously? You think there's nothing out there? Well, now you look at the, the faithful and you think, seriously? You can believe that? Like, we've had a, a huge shift. And this has practical impl- implications. Um, it also, you know, the C- Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor describes this reality as living in with within the imminent frame. So just picture the, the painting that I showed you earlier. It's exactly like what Van Gogh is wrestling with. The idea that there is this, you know, let's say brass frame around the world. There's nothing outside of the material world. You look up for the supernatural, but you only find the natural. The imminent frame. This, so this is the idea that um, we used to think that our depression was the, maybe the result of spiritual warfare or a, a demon that was pl- plaguing us. And now we think, no, it's just my brain's firing the wrong chemicals and I, I probably just need a pill or some breathing exercises. And it's hard for us to consider that it might actually be both. Um, it used to be that we thought we were in love because the stars had aligned or Cupid had struck us with an arrow, right? But now it's like, well, surprise, surprise, humans have a desire to propagate the species. Um, which, of course, takes any goodness out of Romeo and Juliet or any love poem. It, it makes, makes horrible love stories. Try writing a poem about that. Um, but what, what it also means is that we live with a doubt on both sides of that equation, right? It's because you, you take that pill, and does it work? Eh. You still kind of have that feeling that there's something deeply unseated in your soul. And you read that love poem, or you listen to that love song, and you're like, man, how I wish that love existed, really. And th- this, this feeling that we have and our neighbors have, this is the idea of the imminent frame. And I want to tell you that it is a painful place to live. Um, and I want you to appreciate the, the irony. You, if you think of secularization as the rational moving this way and faith moving this way, like we will soon become people who don't need religion, you will completely misunderstand your neighbors. What secularization does mean is that as we get more to the place of thinking that we don't need or have any divine in this world, the more painful it becomes to live in this world. That's where we are. This, this, Because you can't take the longing for eternity out of hearts that were made for eternity. You can't take the hope of heaven out of people who were made for heaven. And you cannot take the imagination of the divine away from people who were created in the image of the divine. And if you need backing, you know, for this other than just me, just listen to some of the most prominent secular voices of our time. Uh, This is why the atheist novelist Julian Barnes writes, uh, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. This is why Tim Kasher of the band Cursive writes, I know there is no point to this, but I can't stop longing for transcendence. This is why the Connor Connor Oberst, a prolific folk writer and kind of a, a, a cultural prophet in a way, writes, and this is a great line, if you swear that there is no truth and who cares, how come you say it like you're right? And why are you scared to dream of God 
when it's salvation that you want. All three of these people are vigilant atheists, but they're smart. And they realize that, why am I scared to dream of God when it's salvation that I want? Why would I swear that there's no truth and who cares and say it like I'm right? Here's the point. When you doubt everything, when doubt is the rubric of existence, guess what happens? You start to doubt the doubt. We, the community of faith, we're not the only people who struggle with doubt. It's the community of doubters who also struggle with doubt, and this is where the light gets in, okay? One of my favorite cultural critics named Ken Myers um, says that the kind of atheism we experience in the West today, particularly in America, is not so much a reasoned conclusion as it is a mood. And this is really important because if you actually go to the philosophy departments, the people who are really thinking hard, they will acknowledge and admit it's, it's hard to hold any sort of meaning and morality together if this is actually true. It's not, none of our logic even holds together. But that doesn't matter. The mood persists. And this is really important. Here's why. If secularism is really a, a, not a conclusion but a mood, well, you all know you're in relationships or have friendships. Anybody with a bit of EQ knows that you cannot disrupt a mood with an argument. What do you have to disrupt it with? A presence. You've got to go there. This, I think, completely changes how we consider ourselves to be missionaries in our moment. What would it be like if we were a people who understood our divine calling, not to make the airtight argument for God that our neighbors don't understand or can even hear because we don't share the same language anymore? How do we bear out the presence of a light in a way that turns the lights in the valley back on? That's the calling of a missionary church. Um, Madeline England, Madeline England, how do you pronounce her name? Madeline Langle once wrote, we draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they long with all their hearts to know the source of it. As we move into these last two habits, I want you to know that these two and all the others that we've talked about can and should be understood as ways of living as the community of God that start to turn the lights back on. What would that be like? I want to share two of them with you. Um, we're going back to our little chart diagram, and we're going to start with the daily habit up here with the plate of a meal a day with others. What does it have to do with evangelism? I can't wait to tell you. All right, the idea of ordering our life around the table is very countercultural in, in a culture that sees food as either fuel or luxury. Okay, you know this, right? Food in our modern moment is something we usually either just stuff on the go or something that we Instagram to share with everybody else. What it's not is usually a communal rhythm of eating with people. Because uh, in both cases, it's increasingly alone. 1999 survey found that the number of people who ate alone uh, tripled between the 60s and the 90s. And now, in 2006, it was almost half Americans ate regularly alone, and now it's even more. So the idea of a communal meal a day is intended to disrupt a kind of disembodied, single-serve, microwavable cultural rhythm. Uh, I, I first experienced the power of this actually when I moved to D.C., and my wife and I had, were very cash-strapped. So we found this house of nonprofit people, the aforementioned nonprofiters, and um, they were, the deal was you could live in this house for very, very cheap rent, like a couple hundred bucks a month, yeah, in D.C. But what you had to do was you had to cook one night, and you had to clean one night, and you had to be at the table every night. So when I, you know, all my law school classmates were headed into the third study group, I was headed home on the metro to pay the rent by coming to the table. 
These people were very different than me. Different beliefs, different sexualities, very different worldviews. We became friends so fast. Why? Because we came to the table regularly. There was a communal rhythm of coming to the table. Now, this is important in your families, right? The, the table, let's say a family dinner, it's where you learn to, you know, say please and thank you, to serve, to express gratitude, to tell stories, to ask questions. It's where you learn to pray often. This is important in, in communal contexts. I mean, the thing that moves housemates to friends or roommates to friends is usually the question, do you eat together? So this is important in our communities, right? But I also want to suggest that it's extremely important as we look outside our communities and invite the outsider in. Rosario Butterfield um, was a tenured New York professor who after two decades of LGBTQ activism and a series of monogamous lesbian relationships, um, she was living in New York and began to write a book on the problems of Christians and the religious right. Um, she did not like us. And it was around this time that a pastor in her town named Ken read some of her editorials and invited her to dinner. And um, compressing the story, you should read Rosario on it. But originally she said she took him up on his invitation because she saw him as good research. And so she went to the table. And what she found was that uh, Ken did not use the Bible in a way to end their arguments, but to expand the conversation. She said that she felt like she was actually not his project, but a friend, vice versa. She came because he was the project, right? Um, Rosario Butterfield is now a devoted follower of Jesus, um, a wife of a pastor, a mother of four. She recently wrote a, a really compelling book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And she argues for this radical, radically ordinary power of hospitality. And so what, what, I, want to see, what I want to tell you is that the, the table is not just the place of community and formation. It's the place where we eat with people who either are or think they are our enemies and actually invite them in. There's all kinds of ways I would love to talk to you about this. But I just want you to think, if you pay most of your attention to social media and that's how you encounter your neighbors, you will have a very weird and untrue view of who they are and who they think we are. But if you eat with your neighbors, you will find real people with real longings and real doubt, and they will find real people with real faith and real answers. That is a power to evangelism. Y'all, I haven't had somebody in Richmond invite me up on, take me up on my invitation to church in years, but I have tons of neighbors. Last time we had our parish group dinner come who don't believe in Jesus, and they come and eat with us. Christine Pohl once suggested that the greatest sermon we ever preach is how we live together. And I think living with these communal rhythms of the table, having an empty chair to invite people into, this is the beginning of evangelism in our modern moment. Um, last habit I'm going to share with you is, uh, this, this one actually is kind of radical. I was joking about Sabbath being radical. Um, th this one is gonna, might, might scare you a little bit. I'm actually suggesting this habit down here with the screen, it's a weekly habit, it's the weekly, weekly habit of curating your media intake to a limit of a certain amount of hours, okay? A lot of people don't like thinking about this because we love our media. Here's, the, well, here's what I mean. If you understand the idea of curation, um, the idea of curation is that we have limits. Let's say one gallery wall, so we have to pick the best art to go on it. You have to pick and choose good stuff. This is the idea that I'm talking about. Curation forces choosing well. All right, and this is really important in a world of media that wants to choose for us. I am not interested in this because I don't like stories. I am interested in this because I think stories are so profoundly important. Stories, more than any lecture that I can give, more than any Sunday school lesson, they shape 
who we are, who we think God is, what we think the good life is, who we think a hero is, who we think a good guy is. Stories shape our vision of the good life. So we need to choose them really well. But how hard is it in our modern moment to choose stories well when they are coming to us in a medium that is designed to get us just to stick around for the next one? And yeah, I'm talking about Netflix and autoplay and stuff like that, but I'm also just talking about clickbait and blogs and social media, who remember the 1,000 people on the other side of the screen are, are programming it very carefully to get you to stick around for more. Did you know that your likes don't show up in real time? They're, they're like an IV drip. If I like something, it doesn't show up to you right away. It shows up in a specific algorithm that's calculated to get you interested. All right? this, this is the idea. It's hard to turn it off, but we need to choose our stories carefully. You could, we could go into a world of why this matters. Personal productivity, time management, blah, blah, blah. That's not um, my biggest concern. Here's my biggest concern. I think the biggest damage that the constant stream of media is doing to the church is not fracturing its attention. That is a problem. I think the biggest damage the constant stream of media is doing to the church is it is fracturing our vision of justice. Here's why. Let me remind you what you probably already know. Here's the God of the Bible. This is how he describes himself. He's the protector of the vulnerable. In Psalm 68, 5, he is the father to the fatherless. He's the defender of the widow. Deuteronomy 10, 18 calls him the God who defends the foreigner living amongst you, giving them food and clothes. In Deuteronomy, he goes on to say, you love the foreigners amongst you, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. In Jeremiah, he commands us, do no wrong, do no violence to the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. What I love reading about justice in the scriptures is that the Bible is completely unembarrassed to say in the same sentence that God loves and protects the unborn, the single mother, the immigrant, the poor child, the refugee, the foster child, the blue collar worker. The God of the Bible is the God who loves them all. And one of the things that happens when we pay attention to the constant stream of media voices is we are subsumed into a different narrative that requires us to pick and choose amongst God's children. Okay, this is what the Bible says, but when we just pay attention to the constant stream of media in America, they will tell you, no, 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 you got to pick. Syrian refugee or blue-collar worker? Who are you going to care for? They'll say, no, you, you got to pick. Innocent immigrant or innocent unborn? Who are you going to love? They're going to say, no, you got to pick. Do you care about the mentally ill suburban white boy or do you kill, care about the disenfranchised inner city urban black boy? Pick. And y'all, not only does this cause incredible national problems and strife, but there are particularly better choice words for this that I won't say here. It's just plain evil. It is just plain evil to break up God's vision of justice for his children. And one of the great calls of the, of the churches in our time is to regather what it means to do justice in this place. And we're not going to do that if we're paying more attention to the pundits rather than the prophets. We cannot do that unless we are more attentive to the scriptures than our screens. And I think this is a stern warning because some of the places that I'm most afraid of in the Bible are where God comes down on his people for, for hurting the poor. So this is a stern warning, but let me also give you the, the great vision. Um, I can't think of a better way to do evangelism in our secular age than by, by being a people who say, we will care for your vulnerable. We will take them in. It, it, in a culture that explains the world by survival of the fittest, and then goes on to say, yeah, but we, we kind of need to think of a way to care for the vulnerable. We could point out the logical fallacy 
But who cares? What's much better is to say, give them to us. Like Mother Teresa said, give me all your unborn. Give me all your mentally ill. Give us your gender confused. Give us your poor. Give us your mentally ill. We will care for them. We will love them. You know why? Because we were confused. Because we were unfit. Because we were immigrants. Because we were refugees. And God brought us in. That is the God we worship. When our neighbors see that, yeah, they might say they're weird, they're strange. But I'm glad they're here. <laughs> Maybe I will take them up to that invitation to the table after all. So I want to look at this painting one last time as we come to a close. In light of all that we've talked about, eating, curating media, kneeling and praying, scripture, I want you to look back on this painting and see that, look at the man behind this painting, this disturbed man on the verge of suicide, painting his longing for the divine and the stars. I want you to see that this is where our neighbors are. And as they look out onto the church in America, as they look out onto the land of the free and the home of the brave, I want to ask you, what do they see? Do they see a church with a light turned on or not? And my charge to you to conclude this weekend would be let us be a kind of people who not just by our words, yes, through our words, but by our communal rhythms of life together, by our communal habits that we live with, could we be the kind of church who when they look and see us, they see a disruptive presence of divine light, God shattering the imminent frame and coming in. This is what I charge you to be. Go out and make your houses place, places. In this, in this cultural desert, make them warm little missional monasteries out there where you pray, where you read the scriptures, and where you have a beautiful table set with an empty chair and you invite all the lonely in. Let's go out and be people who through our rhythms of paying attention to stories and media, we shine the light, the bright witness of justice in a dark time. Let's go out and through our friendships and through our communities, build bonfires along this cultural road that all the lonely say, wow, I wanna be part of this relationship, be part of this friendship, so that maybe we could become the kind of church who when they look out in the valley, just like St. Paul writes, they look up and they see us shining like the stars that Van Gogh was looking for. Let me pray for us. Lord, you are the light of the world and you have charged us to be the light of the world. May we light up the dark by our words and by our lives. Would you inspire us? Would you lead us in grace to create extraordinary things out of really ordinary rhythms? I thank you for this this weekend and what you're doing amongst this church and this people, Lord, I pray that they would be a light in D.C., that so many neighbors would want to come and hear and warm themselves and see you. It's in your name we ask for this. Amen.